Welcome to Quarantine Creatives. I'm Heath Rosella. We got a good one today. This is going to be an exciting one. Roy Wood Jr. is here, stand-up comedian, Daily Show correspondent. Going to be talking to Roy in just a minute here. Uh, but first, I just I want to check in with all you and just see how you're doing. Make sure you're staying safe out there. I feel like people are they're starting to get a little lax with all this coronavirus stuff. I'm seeing less masks out there. I'm seeing more people just going out, trying to live life like normal and go out to eat, go out and, and have fun. And I get it. It sucks to be locked up in your house for months on end. But I don't want you getting sick. And I don't want you getting somebody else that, that might be vulnerable sick. And we're just, if you're looking at the data right now, Arizona's seeing a huge spike. Florida had its largest single-day case count since the beginning of all this in March. Texas has seen huge spikes. South Carolina. And I just hope people are are being smart about it. I feel like this story has fallen off the news radar. You know, Donald Trump has not stood in front of the country in a while now with Dr. Fauci, Dr. Birx. We just haven't heard from these people about coronavirus, and it feels like the hope is if we just ignore it, it goes away. And that's not how science works. I feel like some of this is a push to try to get back to normal and to try to recover the economy. And I feel like there's a weird piece of this, sadly, that's about getting people off of unemployment, that there's <laughs> there's these record unemployment claims right now. And if, if a business is open and you choose not to go in, well, then you're not eligible for unemployment and it sucks to be you. So now people are having to choose between getting this disease, potentially getting exposed to it, or a paycheck. And I, just, I think that's really unfortunate. And I just hope that you are still practicing safe habits. You're wearing that mask when you go out. You're washing your hands. You're keeping six feet from, from you and other people. This thing is not going away anytime soon. It feels like we are, you know, a couple hours into a major storm that's going to be lashing us for several days. Like if you've ever been in a hurricane or a tropical storm or something like that, it might be two or three days where there's just winds and rain and stuff, just, you know, hammering your house. Well, it feels like we're like six hours into that storm and there's still another, you know, two and a half days to get through. And I just hope we're all, we're all recognizing that. So Roy Wood Jr., this is another one of those guests that I never expected to say yes to this show. And I had pitched Roy right at the beginning. I mean, he was probably like the fifth or sixth person I pitched. Never expected to hear anything back. And, you know, it took a day or two, but he wrote me and said, yeah, I'm, I'm down, but I got to find the time for it. I can't do it right away. And so it's been about a month uh, since that exchange. We ended up scheduling a talk. And we talked uh, last week, last Friday, and I, I was really excited to talk to him. He is such an incredible stand-up. If you get a chance, go watch some of his stand-up specials. Father figure, no one loves you. He's got a bunch of, of great stand-up material, and it's just, he's a really smart joke writer and a really complex joke writer. So his stand-up is brilliant. But part of what I wanted to talk to him about, too, is just working on The Daily Show. You know, he's been a correspondent there since 2015. He came in uh, at the same time as Trevor Noah. And he has just done a phenomenal job of breaking down 
all sorts of issues. And, and we talk about it uh, in the interview, one of them really being police violence. And this is something that, that he's been covering for the five years he's been on The Daily Show. It's not new for him, even though a lot of America is just sort of waking up to this now or, or reawakening to it. He's been talking about police issues for five years on The Daily Show and in his stand-up act going back, you know, almost from the beginning. So it's it's an interesting time to have talked to him. In some ways, I'm glad that, you know, it took a month to have this conversation with him because if we had talked prior to George Floyd, I don't think these issues would have come up as much. But because of where we are right now, because of, of Black Lives Matter and, and the defund the police movement and all this, his expertise is just, it's brilliant right now. And the other thing that I really appreciated in this conversation, and honestly, it it threw me off a little bit at first, was the Roy that I've seen from a distance, whether that's in his act or on Twitter, he's performing always. You know, I, I, I know him as a performer, and I feel like I know his onstage persona. And even in interviews and stuff that I listened to prior to, to interviewing him, I felt like I was hearing more from from that persona than from the person himself. And you'll hear in, in this interview, he's not telling jokes in the way that you might expect. He's not He's not performing for me in any way. We're just having a, a very real, very disarmed conversation. And it's a very technical conversation in a lot of ways. He gets into how his interpretation of the news formulates his comedic voice and, and the type of comedy he does. He talks about what makes a good Daily Show segment. And just at a really deep level, sort of understanding the technical elements that make a Daily Show segment funny, that make it function. But he's not performing one of those segments for me at all. He's, it's, it's like a textbook of just, hey, you want to be a Daily Show correspondent, here's the stuff you got to know. So it's a very kind of inside baseball conversation that we had. And I, I was excited for it. I mean, again, it, it took me a minute to sort of get into that rhythm. But once I knew that that's what we were doing, I just realized this became one of the, one of the richest conversations I've had on this show so far. Because it was just so technical. It it was really about how humor works. And it just, it made me really appreciate Roy's intellect, his sensibility, and just sort of all the pieces that are going on in his brain behind the scenes that get you to that performative side of him. That you need that deep analysis, you need that deep understanding of your own craft in order to get the jokes on stage. So I hope you walk away learning some stuff just about comedy and how it works. So here it is, my conversation with Roy Wood Jr. I'm curious just sort of what your experience has been like over the last three months dealing with this quarantine and all. Uh, it's been pretty creatively different. Yeah. Because there, it is different as a comedian it is my job to report on the world around me. Yep. I feel like comedians are journalists, right? Yeah, totally. So you either report on either reporting on what you see or you're reporting on what you feel. Those are essentially the only two types of jokes that exist to me that are of substance. It's not to say other jokes aren't funny, 
but the jokes that I enjoy are rooted in one of those two things. Yeah. So if you're trying to create what you see and what you see is constantly getting crazier and crazier, you know, for there to really be comedy, you know, things have to bottom out and you have to have something to build from, you know, in order for jokes to work, we have to all agree on the premise. I think Mike Birbigley is saying that. Yeah. And the problem is that things keep getting crazier and crazier. No one will agree how, and we still haven't bottomed out. We still yeah. haven't bottomed out in 2020. So how do you build jokes when the ground is still shifting under you? That's why what Chappelle did is so amazing. Chappelle's just like, look, I got to clock in. I got to check in. Yeah. And this won't be polished, but it will be raw and it will be real. It will be honest because I don't think we're even past feeling and digesting everything to really get to a point of constructing humor in the traditional 2019 sense of constructiveness. So, you know, I have peaks and valleys. There's weeks where I write really well and I'm working on old ideas and there's weeks where I have 40 new ideas that flood my head that would speak more to the times we're in. And it makes the ideas that I've been working on the previous weeks feel irrelevant. Yeah. Primarily stand-up material. Well, stand-up ideas and show ideas. Yeah. You know, I think they both run hand in hand. You know, I've always, I've always longed for, I've always longed to be able to do material that speaks to, you know, our conditions as, you know, as people, as humans. So for me, they're kind of, they kind of run hand in hand. Gotcha. In a way. It's interesting just thinking about that, that deluge of, of news over the last couple of weeks and, you know, coronavirus and not feeling like we're at the end of that yet. And then, you know, George Floyd's death and the protests that have come out of that and just feeling like that is, is gaining momentum every day. But we've been in this place of, uh, of the news just, being a i don't know these open floodgates for doesn't it feel like for four or five years now it's kind of been that way yeah i think with floyd i think people really aren't taking into account how much COVID played into floyd in creating that perfect storm of activism people were already broke yeah without jobs many were sick those who recovered have medical bills yeah so there was there was a powder keg that was already soaked in kerosene. And, you know, Ahmaud Arbery, Rihanna Taylor, and then George Floyd, you know, those all happened within the same month, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, within they almost a week of each other, I think, right? Correct. They're very close. Correct. Yeah. Within like two weeks. So probably put it two to three weeks, but close enough to where – you hadn't gotten past the anguish of one before you got hit with another. Why are you getting hit with that one? Then you get a video that is just so unprecedented that you just look up and just, you know, people explode. And and I think that's what makes this moment, you know, so different. It literally feels like Kobe Bryant died five years ago. Right. And what was that? February, right? January, February. February. Kobe Bryant died this year. Yeah, that's crazy. Just thinking about sort of all these issues, you know, as I look back at sort of your tenure at The Daily Show and your your stand-up material as well, the police and sort of the, the police relationship to the black community has always been sort of a through line. Like I saw there's a piece you did with Jordan Klepper right at the beginning of your run, I think, looking at bias training. Yeah. yeah. 
And then, you know, you, you did a thing this week on police unions. It just sort of like, I feel like you've been on this beat for a lot longer than, than the country's been there. Yeah, I mean, I, it's fun to explore in my stand-up because I can go a little deeper than we have time for on yeah. the Daily Show. But, you know, I feel like there's there's something wrong in law enforcement. And I say that as a person who has two badges in his family, you know, and in seeing what's happening in the world, what's always been going on, you know, I'm I'm just going to mention it. And if you choose to pay attention, great. If not, that's cool too. But, you know, I just report about the things that I see and the things that I feel. And I've always felt like there's been, you know, some inequity in how minorities are policed and how laws are constructed. What I really would love to get to the bottom of is politicians and politics, because that's the stuff that really, you know, in my opinion, that that's the stuff that, you know, police are just a tip of the sword. We need the hand that's holding it held accountable. And I think that's the thing that we really have to, um, that we really need to go after, you know, is is the politicians and the people who make the laws who enable these officers to walk around with impunity. Do you feel like we're getting to that point now with the protests that are out there and just seeing them grow? You know, it feels like every day there's bigger crowds out there just standing up for this. Yeah, I, I think that there's definitely growth happening, but I'm in no, I have no interest in popping the champagne in any of these moments, you know, Because, you know, growth two years ago was just getting cops to wear body cameras. And then now cops take them off. They turn them off. They weren't on. So remember when that was the victory? Yay, we got body cams. They'll never kill us again now. Wrong. Cops who killed Floyd were wearing theirs and they were running. So, you know, I I think we still... You know, this is progress, but at no point am I ready to say, all right, but it definitely is reassuring. You know, what you're seeing right now is reassuring because you're seeing white people out there marching. You're seeing young people out there marching. I mean, hell, a 75-year-old white man is out there marching and got knocked down. God bless him. But, you know, that's that's where we are right now. We're just in a different it's just a different space-time continuum for activism. But to say that because we had this breakthrough that, you know, I don't think we're rounding third and headed for home. Comfortably on second, maybe? Yeah, sliding in a second. You You know, this might just be rounding first because I really feel like, you know, a lot of reallocating funds for the police and really looking at the federal level of accountability for misconduct. I think those two things, you know, if you can get that, then I think you're halfway home. Yeah. But getting legislation, the problem with racism is that you can't even all agree it's a problem. The difference between racism and other natural disasters and other, and other diseases is that every other disease we agree is a disease. Racism is the only disease that a lot of people go out and nobody goes, well, I don't see AIDS. Corona is not real. Even if you think Corona was created by the government, you at least acknowledge its existence. Yeah, I guess. Uh, 
I don't know though. I'm thinking of just like the people that you see out, you know, not wearing masks or, you know, the, those pool parties in, in Missouri uh, over Memorial Day, that kind of stuff of just, uh, I don't know. It does oh, feel yeah. like there's two different sets of facts, right? Global warming, no, racism. I don't care about, I don't care about catching it versus it's not real. I think okay. it's two different things. Gotcha. You know, it's, it's, yeah, it's out there, but it ain't going to affect me. Yeah. I don't care nothing about no Corona. AIDS is for gay people. Yeah, you know that's what they used to say. So that in that in and of itself, that is acknowledging the existence of it, or it's being overblown. And even if you think it's overblown, at least you believe it's real. And I think there's a lot of people in America that won't give racism just the dig just the dignity of existing. Just hear us when we say this is happening. Yeah. And people go, nope, you're crazy. I got two black friends and they're cool. So fuck what you're talking about. Right. And I guess that's the power of video, too, I think. Like, just there's something about seeing that George Floyd tape. When when you have video proof of something, it puts it in a different context, right? Yeah. I mean, technology advances the conversation. A lot of people could say the same about Ray Rice as it relates to me, too. Yeah. Technology plays a role in advancing the conversation. You know, definitely, you know, we're in a position where if you look at, um, how can I put it, like, the way the Selma march was, you know, organized by Dr. King to be shown on TV so that America could see Black people being brutalized in the South. You know, imagery is something that's a very, very powerful part of activism, unfortunately. It sucks that it has to be that way. But the only reason people celebrate technology's advancement is because there's people who still don't believe that racism is real. Yeah. So you have to literally show it to them. And even when you show it to them, it's still twisted into, well, what did he do? Right. He was a bad person, and, you know, whatever. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know how you get past that. I mean, that's the that's the scary thing in all this, I guess. Um, I want to shift just to sort of the Daily Show for a minute and and t- just sort of hearing your experience with, with the quarantine and making the show from home and all that. Like when that change first started, what were you what were you thinking? What were you feeling? How how did the process of making the show change? The first thing is everybody had to get better lights for their cameras. Yep. <laughs> this is when I knew it was like, oh, okay, this is going to be like this for a while is when they sent us camera mounts and ring lights. Yep. And I was like, oh, we're home, home. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> like, that's when I knew that, like, you know, as, as the young people say, shit was going down. Yeah. The, the first week or so, were the shows just going to YouTube? Is that, like, they weren't even going to air at first, right? It was just kind of Trevor Correct. doing, no, doing the monologues first and stuff. Week, yeah. The first week was strictly YouTube. Yeah. And that went well. We figured out a model and we were the first one in late night to get back on the horse. Um, and it just, it felt like the right thing to do. Like, even if we weren't going to be in studio and not have the razzle dazzle and audience and all of that jive, it still felt like the right thing to do because there was still a lot of bullshit that was going on that right. needed to be, needed to be checked. That felt like the right thing. And I don't think anybody could have fathomed this length of time for it yeah but i think we're happy to still be working and still you know have an opportunity you know to get out here and you know use our voice for something 
I feel like so much of your role too, though, is is field based, right? Like the correspondence, you guys go out and do field pieces and and interview people around the country. Like, how is how has that how has your job shifted being stuck at home in terms of the types of stories you can tell and and how you have to execute them? We tell the same same stories. The bigger difference is that performative jokes are off the table. Yeah, you know, you learn how much of your jokes are in the space that you occupy or here's a funny joke of b-roll of me walking down the street between interviews that's gone yeah so that part of it is very difficult you know a, a great example there's the, a great example would be the piece i did on alternative meets oh from yeah th- this was a real field piece from like a year or so ago correct yep, and okay, I remember I that. Think yep. it was a year. well you know it might be a year by now so the alternative meets piece required me to go into two different factories to see their process in creating um, plant-based uh, meat. Yep. Plant-based you know, what you know what I mean, fake meat. Yeah, yeah. The show and tell of that was the piece. Right. Me eating a chicken nugget that was made from a cloned cell of a chicken on television. Like being in that lab, being in that space, that's part of the comedy. That's a lot of the comedy in that sure. piece. And that's a piece that goes from probably five and a half minutes on pre-COVID to maybe three minutes post-COVID. Yep. Just because you don't have, you can't do that physical part of it. If you just take, if you take all the, you can't be on location. So automatically every joke you can make in this piece is in the chair. Yep. And that's kind of what I call it in the best, what some people call it. You got jokes that are in the chair and jokes out the chair. Yep. You want a 50-50 balance. So now we're in a place where a lot of the jokes are in the chair, and that's how it started. But then we started getting creative. We started moving around the house. Jabuki Young-White probably is the best at it performatively in home, yep. moving around with the camera phone. But like even if you can see the evolution from March till now in field pieces. Like I did a barbershop piece where I tried to cut my own hair. I was out the chair yeah and that was the barber kind of explaining things to me so we you start you figure out the rules and then you learn how to break them and bend them and, and shift them to work into something that's that's applicable to you yeah and, and how much of that is on your shoulders like I, I feel like so much of those pieces are made in the edit right it's it's putting the pieces together and putting the funny moments back back to back like when you're when you're uh, trying to create these moments by yourself at home and sending them off to somebody to edit, like <laughs> what's the learning curve on that? I guess uh, we still have a producer that's on that's on the line with us, yep. even when we're producing, you know, so, you know, producing at the house. And a lot of that is the producer's job is to watch and hear this piece as it's unfolding as a viewer and thus be able to ask better questions or seek clarification so we can get all of that in the moment. Gotcha. But I, I'm not, I get it. I understand it, but you know, I would be lying if I said I wasn't one of those people that was anxious for things to open back up whenever they do, because you know, you really, really want to have that time in the room with people um so the best i can do is kind of zoom 10 minutes early and just kind of talk to them a little bit and you know break the ice things like that and that helps yeah it's fine it's it's what we have to do right now and it's definitely better than nothing and it's also better than not working right so and i think everybody you know the audience is at home too so they're a lot more forgiving of it 
than they would be, you know, if if you guys just shifted to that model and everyone else was still out living their lives, you know, it would be, <laughs> yeah. be a much different thing. Yeah, that's weird. Why is he at the house? <laughs> So moving on from The Daily Show for a second and just talking about sort of stand up and, you know, that's that's sort of you did that for what, 15, 20 years before. Yeah, 20 years. Yeah. You wrote this piece kind of right at the beginning of the shutdown for Vulture, just sort of saying comedy's dead for a while, guys. (laughs) Take a seat. It's going to be a it's going to be a tough road uh, ahead of us. How are you feeling three months on from writing that piece? I feel like I was right. (laughs) Yeah. Chappelle has shown a path through with the outdoor stuff. And Burt Kreischer is doing a bunch of drive-ins. And there's, there's a couple clubs that are already back open. And, you know, they're running at 25% capacity. I don't think that's a sustainable fiscal business model for those for clubs of those sizes. Sure. So, you know, I still think a lot. Again, it's just we, have, we haven't bottomed out as, as a culture yet from COVID. And I think it's going to be important to see which way the wind blows with a second wave of an outbreak. You know, we get a second wave, all bets are off, bro. Right. You know, anything goes at that point. So, you know, I don't know, man. Like, you know, I'm not in a rush to get back on stage, but I see a lot of comics are heading back out, you know, and they're cool with that. You know, I'm more power to them. But the business of comedy the way it's been run. One of three things has to happen if you want a pre-COVID comedy world. Ticket prices have to double, comedians have to take less, or clubs have to become smaller. Honestly, I take that back. Two of those three things have to happen. Two of three have to happen. Smaller clubs, double the ticket price, or comedians take less money. Pick two. And that's going to be the game. And part of what you wrote in that vulture piece, too, was the lower you are on the food chain, the more likely you are to get pushed out by this, right? Yeah, the more shuffling you're going to have to do. Yeah, and I think it's, you know, the bigger the act. You, know, you watch Dave Chappelle in his 846 special, play an outdoor socially distanced in a park or some farm or something like that. Like, that isn't a standard Chappelle <laughs> move. Yep. You know, in the least. So, you know, I just think that the people that play bigger arenas, they're going to be itching to get back on stage. But for sure, you got to go tune up somewhere. And if the clubs are going to double the price, then the name on the on the on the sign out front better be a name really worth seeing. Right. So if a club is going to double a price, the easiest way to do it is to bring in somebody that's already played bigger places. But even that's not sustainable forever. You know, but it could be life support until there's a vaccine. Have you thought about sort of what it would take to get you back out? Like, would would it have to be half the room? <laughs> would it have to be people in masks? Like, what what's your comfort level with getting back out there? I haven't given any thoughts of going back out. You know, I think August or September at the earliest right now. Um, you know, I've done some weird corporate shows and stuff that have been fun. In-person shows? No, no, no. Just over Zoom. Gotcha. Yeah. Not, not stand-up, per se, but like weirdly structured comedic sessions. Yeah. And it worked. Huh. So, you know, I think that, you know, I might do a little bit more of that, but, you know, I honestly am not in a rush to get back out. I, I do think that waiting to see that there's a grasp 
on this disease. For sure, meet and greets are done. There's no more photos after a show. I'm sorry. You know, that's when I knew it was time for me to come off the road anyway. It was in Pittsburgh. The week before Daily Show shut down, I was at the Pittsburgh Improv at the end of February. And I was shaking hands and taking pictures. And then, like, the last show Saturday night, I was like, huh. I've probably touched 1,200 people right. at this. Literally, I have phys- I've had physical contact with 1,200 people with yeah. my hands. Right. I don't think I should do that anymore. <laughs> and so that show, that was that was the night. It was just a switch flip in my head. And I was like, yeah, fuck that forever. Yeah. It was weird that for that stretch. I remember where that like that was the first advice, right? It was like, don't shake hands with people. And just sort of feeling out that etiquette with other people of like, they go for it. And I was the guy, you know, around that same time that just putting my hands up like, yeah, no, we shouldn't be doing that. And like, oh, yeah, no, you're right. We shouldn't be. But like, yeah, I mean, I wish we were back at that place. That was (laughs) if that's all it was, was don't shake hands for a little while. I would be all right with that. Yeah. Uh, thinking about not just comedy clubs, but, you know, the daily show and what do you got? You have what? 150, 200 seat audience there every night. Like, yeah, I think it's like 200. Yeah. How, how comfortable would you be going back to work with a live audience? Like, what do you think the future is, I guess, for a live audience show like yours? I don't know. That's a producer question. You know, the difference between a studio and a comedy club is that the audiences are much louder. Yep. And this space is bigger. So, you know, there might be a way to space that out, you know. You know I don't know. Or you just go with fewer people. You just go with the quainter, smaller, you know, Sam B. There's there's a lot of there's a lot of shows that have audiences smaller than Daily Show. Yeah. That sound good. You can't tell the difference on air. I feel like once you get over fifty people, it just sounds like a lot anyway. Right. <laughs> the difference between 50 and 500 is, is marginal yeah, for, TV, that for television jokes yeah yep. for television jokes yeah I, I don't think it's that big of a difference so you know it's it's something to think about but that's beyond my pay grade my job is to show up sit in a chair and look in the camera and try not to fuck it up <laughs> Uh, I've got one more question. Just uh, you have deep roots in the Birmingham area, I know, and I saw you were down there helping with some of the cleanup after uh, after some of the rioting and things that happened, right? Yeah, it was it was it was fun. I, I don't know. It, it's it's where I'm from, and it's just the right thing to do. And you see a lady on TV, you know, you know, cleaning up her life essentially. And, you know, you want to try and be a part of the solution instead of, you know, the problem. And also, much fewer people than a protest. So, from a COVID standpoint, I got to contribute and I lessen my chances of getting infected. And then you <laughs> give money to the people that are going out there and taking the real risk. Yeah. So, that's probably the one thing that I've enjoyed the most about that I've discovered the most about myself in this has been um, like this whole charity side of me and 
doing to, you know it started with the tip your weight staff with Mike Birbiglia. This was this was a fundraising for essentially the comedy club workers, the waiters and bar staff and correct. Yeah. Correct. This is like week two of quarantine when the club started to fall. Yep. And so we're like, yo, what are we gonna do? And then, you know, we came up with that and then <laughs> the next thing you know, like that turned into <laughs> like I think Birbiglia is still doing it to this day. Like I, I know we're well over two hundred thousand total from various clubs across oh, wow. the country. That's great. Then I started raising for you know local charities down here, and then we ended up here. We made the drive down after a couple of months. My family, so my son could be around his grandma a little bit. Oh, so you're in Birmingham now? And you're not correct, in New York. Oh, correct. Okay, gotcha. Gotcha. No, I left. I left New York about a month ago. Gotcha. Okay. And so you know that's been. I don't know. It's it's been it's been worth it. It's been worth the trouble to just do what I can to try to help. And you know, even if you can't do everything, you know, you do what you can. So, all right, well, let me see what pro bono lawyers are out there doing stuff, and let me spread the word about that. I just think there's always ways that you can do, you know, that you can do something. Yeah. You know? And I think it's figuring that out for each person. I mean, for you, you've got you've got this great megaphone. So yeah, I've seen you sort of amplifying, uh, as you said, pro bono lawyers for people that get arrested protesting and things like just whatever you can do to help in your way. I guess right. We all we all have a, con- a contribution to make during this time, and it's incumbent upon us to figure out what that is and how we use our own talents to help what's going on. Probably one of the biggest lessons I got about the world was cleaning up football stadiums. As a, as a teenager, uh-huh. I used to work Alabama football games. And when you're cleaning up the stadium, everybody has a different role in cleaning up the stadium, right? Yeah. Some people have the leaf blower, and their only job is to get everything out the rows into the aisles. And then you have a person in the aisle who's pushing it all the way down the stairs to the main entrance to another person who has a leaf blower to another person who has a trash can to another person who takes the trash can to the trash truck, trash truck takes it out. The, and somewhere in the midst of all of that, you have people that are just walking the stadium bleachers looking for wallets to steal. And so we all have a part in this and there's always going to be some people who aren't necessarily doing the right thing, but you all have a part to play. So, you know, you just pick up a broom and start and start cleaning, man. Yeah, and I guess on that stadium analogy, it's like if everybody was going around with their own trash bag, you know, picking up one cup at a time, it would take you forever to clean it. But if you can get in there with a leaf blower and, yeah, each person has their part. and Each person has a part. It. Yeah. Everybody has a part. And I think the important thing is not critiquing people for not doing things the way you think they should do it. And I think that's where, you know, things can kind of fall off the rails Mm. when it comes to trying to, you know, find solutions in this society. Roy Wood Jr. A lot of great stuff in there. So much fun to talk to him. Really, really enjoyed that conversation. Roy is on The Daily Show. He's been a correspondent there for the last five years. Go watch The Daily Show on Comedy Central. He also has guest spots right now on Space Force on Netflix. He has a guest role on The Last OG on TBS and on Better Call Saul. And his stand-up special is No One Loves You. Go check that out as well. All right. So that is it for today. Thank you so much for tuning in. 
please rate, subscribe, leave a review. Got a new show coming on Thursday. Make sure you, you come back for that. Until then, stay safe. Wash your hands. Wear a mask.